Welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast, where we explore how to accelerate the future. Imagine a world of abundance, longer lives, clean energy, transparent markets, robots and AI doing the toiling labor. Why don't we have those things yet? Join us as we explore the biggest problem that holds back frontier tech, overregulation. Now we have real solutions, startup cities, network states, and on-chain finance. Please find ways to support us in the show notes. Now enjoy this episode. All right. Welcome. I'm so glad you're, you're here. I hope you can call this uh, home at some point, wherever Vitaya may be. Um, so you two kind of seems to me like you complete each other. You're more on the early stage, let's develop new treatments uh, in the lab on cell culture and animal models and so on. And you care a lot more about lifestyle, but also more retail news and posting news. <laughs> so you care about what we can do now in humans, right? Started with diet, lifestyle interventions, but more recently also things uh, more advanced therapies like administered polystatin gene therapy being uh, pioneered here in, in Prospera. Um, how do you uh, see completing? Do you try to also uh, contribute to the early stage science, and do you try to also Contributes to the clinical stage. Well, yeah, I mean, I. Yes, cool. Um, so, I certainly try my very best to contribute to every stage. The work that I do in the organisation I lead, LV Foundation, is just part of the work that I do. Of course, I'm um, always trying to leverage the you know, the prestige and the prominence of the that I have looked at over these 25 years or whatever to ensure that everything goes forward, led back not only at the level of what we can do already, which is, I'd say, led by its brands, nine targets, but also at the level outside of the actual science, um, you know, the regulatory cup. And the last key part of the reason I'm here is both to learn and to be able to quote the innovations that I think are the huge role in accelerating the access, not just for a few people, but eventually for the whole world, to both the things that are available already and the things that people like myself are developing. It's okay, but it's time. Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> now, I saw that Noah put up on the, on the stream that when he was turning with a professional juggler, I was thinking, like, these microphones, there are three of them, and they're a bit like Skittles, so maybe that's something that could be up to you, said book. Hi, everyone. Nice to see you. Hi. It, hi. <laughs> it's amazing that all of you are here, that this is, this actually worked to yeah. get this many talented people in one location to work on in the future. It's phenomenal. So thank you for having me. Yeah, I guess the thing I want to focus on is, uh, for me, that... The thing that brought me the greatest happiness was after I, I guess at age 21, I wanted to do something meaningful for the human race. And I've been working on that project for 25 years. And so the question is, what do you do in life? How do you spend your time and why? And I did this thought experiment about uh, trying to converse with the 25th century. So you're present among that intelligence of some variety and you're hearing the conversation and they're observing what happened in the early 21st century that made it possible for intelligence to thrive in this part of the galaxy. What happened? And that thought experiment produced a lot of clarity for me, or at least um, the thought, the practice of doing it, because in this moment, there's so much noise about what is happening in the world. And there's an endless list of things you can talk about of political drama, um, current norms, ethics, but it's very hard to pull yourself out of that uh, time and place. And so the observation led me to conclude that the 25th century said the thing that was most relevant was Homo sapiens in the early 21st century figured out that the only thing they should care about was don't die. And it sounds like a clever frame, but actually it's endlessly expansive, where it's don't die individually, don't kill each other, don't kill the planet, and aligned AI will don't die. And if you take the situation, you say, okay, we're baby steps away from superintelligence, what do we do as a species? How do we think about reality? What do we care about? What are our ethics? What are our norms? 
and we go out and we survey the world and say, who has something to offer in this thought process? Very few structures offer anything useful. And so don't die is an attempt to uh, be relevant at the programmatic level with artificial intelligence builds and to our individual daily actions and through the whole stack, through nation state negotiations. And that's really what I've tried to do. So Blueprint, yes, it's about food and diet and speed of aging and other markers. But really, it's about the transition from Homo sapiens to Homo habilitus of how we continue intelligence as part of the galaxy. And a lot of what you guys are doing here is directionally on point with that. That it's it's actually we're doing it. We just don't frame it that way. So yeah, that's entirely what I've been trying to do. Is uh, when you look back to the you know the previous centuries, we define centuries with three or four or five things. Everything else is just compressed. Our time period will be compressed too. 99.9% of what we do will be forgotten to history. They'll be all compressed. And so the question is, what do we work on that actually survives that 0.1% survivability over the centuries? And what's your take on the um, on advancing early stage uh, discovery for uh, new drugs that could, you could eventually take yourself? How, how fast do you think uh, we could take something from an academic idea paper to something that we could try on ourselves in the community and when when do you feel comfortable to try something i heard earlier someone was like we need a guinea pig for this exosome brain aging thing yeah i'm gonna give it to you uh yeah everybody wants to do an experiment on me <laughs> uh, never underestimate how fast things can change Look throughout history, and you find punctuated equilibrium, where it's the same, and then all of a sudden, it's entirely different. And I think we're headed for that moment where I think it's probably going to coincide with advances in artificial intelligence, where it's going to create an endogenous shock for society, and we're going to say, who are we? Why do we exist? What do we do? How do we think? And it's going to have, invite us to rethink all the fundamentals. And so I personally am doing Blueprint uh, because there's this concept of uh, like the model citizens, where once somebody does something and they demonstrate it possible, all of a sudden, so many other humans can do it. And so, for example, like the reason why I kind of lived a monk-like life for eight months to show, for example, I could get the best sleep score in human history was to show that one could prioritize and get high-quality sleep. It's actually a variable you can control, and then everything else. And so I'm trying to basically tip the zeitgeist where... It's all it's uh, offensive, it's weird, it's eccentric, it's repulsive, and then it's amazing in one moment. Hmm. And that's what I think is coming is we humans love to, to explain why we think technologies are a bad idea and why how complicated it's going to be, and then maybe they become available. We ferociously adopt them, <laughs> and that's always been the case. So we can't trust our disposition toward this. And I think that the point. Uh, coming very soon, and like you know, I did uh, many circles volatan therapy in September. I just brought my dad here. We he did a therapy yesterday. He's seventy-one years old, and you know, this is an interesting story. Dad, do you want to stand up? Yeah, stand up. That's right. Yeah. My, <laughs> my, my dad is seventy-one years old. His life expectancy is sixty-eight. And it is a different situation when you don't know what's going to happen every single day of your life. You don't know if today is your last day. And when you're in that situation, life becomes so precious, and he's there. And so I think it takes on an entirely different meaning. When someone's healthy and happy, they can dismiss anything about this because they don't care. But when you're in his shoes, these things are all that matter. And... I think it's an inspiration that his ferociousness of wanting life is, to me, the thing that motivates me. Aubrey, um, how do you see collaborating with the clinical side? Oh, I think it's vital. I think that there is always going to be a, a, a professional barrier that, um, you know, PhDs and MDs think rather differently and they have rather different areas of focus. 
But they both recognise the, the need to um, the, the pipeline, you know, from research to um, implementation and delivery. Um, and therefore, I think it's the job of all of us to figure out the best way to lubricate that pipeline to um, to, to improve the ability of things to move from the from the lab into the clinic and to be disseminated as rapidly as possible. And um, you know, the the, the uh, the, the main reasons why the barriers exist are, those reasons are not particularly difficult to overcome, I don't think. Um, it's just giving people, whether in the lab or in the clinic, the right opportunity to communicate, to collaborate, and, and to, um, yeah, to, 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 to give people the benefit of the knowledge. For example, when I give talks to groups of MDs, it's often quite frustrating because they're really, you know, they've got so much to focus on in terms of what's already available to prescribe that they kind of prefer to wait and see what's coming down the puck. Um, but some of these are actually, you know, they recognise that it's valuable to have to anticipate what's coming down the pike at least a little bit, and to um, you know to educate themselves on this to maintain a certain degree of of currency as to things that that are to be able to prescribe in the in, in the near future not least so that they can talk to them about uh, talk about those things to their patients uh you know so as to maintain optimism and, and so on so I see, I see a world in which this is a vibrant city uh we had labs you direct scientists there come up with molecules and and then um the question is how without MDs necessarily um, uh, gatekeeping, because we have biohackers that get advice from MDs, right? Rejuvenation, at least. Um, so we, to get we as a community, can self-experiment, right? Um, when, how do you see that collaboration between the early stage um, bench scientists coming up with molecules? testing it in, in, in animals and when it, it's ready for someone like Ryan uh, to, to take? Well, actually, I, I mean, I think the existence of people like Brian and also perhaps just as conspicuously uh, the early adopters who are not doing such a comprehensive job but who are doing particularly uh, conspicuous things and, 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 and getting a lot of profile for it, of course, there's parishing, the problem is example of that. Um, you know, these people are actually helpful, or they can be helpful to the mainstream medical profession by doing it intelligently, as of course many increasing numbers of them are, uh, you know, gathering the appropriate data so as to, um, to help streamline the process of getting something to a sufficient level of um, you know, confidence in safety and efficacy so that it can go through to uh, people who would not call themselves early adopters, whether it, whether that be within a regulatory framework, uh, originally one, you know, with with you know reimbursement and all that, or whether it be uh, more um, growing, so to speak, the way it is Um Why do you think we haven't yet had a Los Alamos for longevity, a, a moonshot kind of project? Go on, you first. I think you know much more about this than I do. <laughs> All right, I'll do my best. So actually, um, I had a conversation last night at one of the parties uh, with someone who's here uh, about exactly this, um, suggesting that maybe there is a, an ongoing shift in mindset in the Far East that may make such a thing possible. And I'm definitely going to be exploring this a lot because if that shift is beginning, then I definitely want to speed it up. I want to do what I can to speed it up. Um, the logic here is essentially that it's, a, it's always been a little for decades that the Far East is so slow uh, uh, to get on the longevity train. You know, they've got this well-deserved respect for the elderly. They've got, um, uh, you know, a huge um, demographic problem, especially in countries like Japan and Korea. Um, They've got, uh, you know, very um, well-deserved reputation for being good at technology. 
Um, so, you know, you'd think they'd be on that track. And yet, uh, you know, the example I would like to give is that out of the, like, literally 800 or so talks I've given over the past 20 years worldwide, I've never been once invited to give an invited talk from Japan. Um, you know, it's ridiculous. Um, so, uh, if that's changing, then it is the kind of situation in which we might be able to actually have a genuine, you know, Manhattan Project, Apollo Project type thing. The problem, what, the reason why we haven't had one in the West are pretty leading obvious. You know, the, the, the decision whether to do something centralised, government-funded, depends on, essentially, decision-making by people who only have one goal in life, which is to get re-elected, and therefore it depends on public opinion. And public opinion is just culturally very different here. And, you know, we all know how hard it has been to shift public opinion, even in the context of steady progress in laboratories that gets talked about in mainstream media every day. Um, so, you know, that's kind of a simple answer to why it happened in the West. But if it can happen in the Far East, you know, let's do everything we can to help it happen. I'll go with this. All right, so do a thought experiment. And let's imagine we're hanging out with Homo erectus. You know, they have their ax, hasn't innovated for, for a million years. And we say, Homo erectus, where do we hunt? We're going to trust their opinion. We say, Homo erectus, what plants are dangerous? Also going to trust its opinion. And we say, Homo erectus, tell us what it's like to the future of the species. We're not going to trust Homo erectus. And in this moment, the question is, are we Homo erectus? Are we just as oblivious? Are we just as ignorant? Do we have basically nothing to say about the future? And so with Blueprint, what I try to establish is we Homo sapiens have an endowment form of intelligence for 200,000 years. There's a new form of intelligence that's here that's arguably better at us in many ways. And so I try to mirror that in my own body. And I try to say, if I was going to become a new system of intelligence, I would empower all my body's organs to speak. So I'm going to measure every organ in the body. It will speak the heart, liver, lungs, pancreas, what it wants. And then we'll create a protocol, and it will go and close with my mind is not consulted. So it's not how are you feeling, it's like what do you want from the menu, it's this closed process. Now that is a new system of intelligence, much like democracy was a new form of intelligence from monarchy. So the U.S. had the, the strength of the U.K., and then we had this new system of people voting, which was very radical at the time. And so in, in this situation, of we presume that we humans know what we want. Why have we not had a Manhattan Project for Longevity? Well, you have to go back to who's deciding and under what conditions. And there's a possibility that our minds may no longer be the most qualified form of intelligence to decide what we should do in the future. Now, of course, that is offensive. That is going to trigger all kinds of thoughts of being of dystopic. Uh, I've had this conversation so many times. I know most of what you're all thinking on this. But it's a real observation that when you really contemplate and take stock of our intelligence, it's undeniable that a new form of computational existence is emergent in biology, in silicon, across the board. And in those situations, for me, you know, what should I eat? It's no longer my mind. And so I would say that there's a possibility we may be able to prioritize things that are truly in our long-term long best interest, but in ways that we can't imagine right now that seem so offensive and, and atypical that we just dismiss them as non-realistic possibilities. I would love to ask you what you disagree with or with each other, but let me first ask you uh, more generally, not necessarily Aubrey, uh, what do you think the longevity biotech industry that tries to really bring aging under control, what do you think they don't get? What do you think they should do differently? Um, and, and I'm going to ask Aubrey, meanwhile, um, what do you think um, about uh, short-term sort of lifestyle to extend your healthy years to potentially get that longevity is capable of so have more time for the therapeutics to, to catch up. No, that's for the previous question. I'll try the one that you can get against to be right. Honestly, you know, the main thing that's wrong in the longevity industry is not something that I would say necessarily wrong because it's inherent in the word industry. You know, the for-profit sector wants, is funded by people who eventually want their money back, and, and then some. And so that inherently means it's going to be somewhat, it's going to be, in fact, typically very short-termist. It's going to be, uh, you know, everyone who wants to make money wants to make it tomorrow. That's kind of, it goes with the territory. 
But the longevity movement, of course, has, is, uh, is much broader than the longevity industry, and I, of course, have been always on the non-profit side of it, doing things that are pre-investable, maybe never investable, but are just as vital as the things that are investable. And so certainly I would say that one shortcoming of the movement is that there aren't enough people out there recognising that um, the non-profit side needs to be uh, taken forward as well. Essentially, I've benefited from the fact that a few people, a few very wealthy people, and of course a larger number of smaller grassroots donors, have recognised, even if they are entrepreneurial, um, you know, at heart, that, um, you know, the best way to create a private sector is to actually be philanthropic first and let projects get far enough along that they become investable. In fact, Peter Till, my first major donor starting in 2006, um, said it in exactly those terms to me at the time. Um, so, you know, I would very much um, want that philosophy to be taken forward. Uh, we have a very contrary philosophy uh, on the part of some of the people who become prominent in this area over the past decade. So when Larry and Sergey started um, Calico in 2013, everyone said, oh, that's very good. And they tried. They're basically, it's not a company at all. It mean, they actually wear their long-term vision kind of as a badge of honour. Um, but it's also not a proper non-profit, and lo and behold, it's not getting very much done. Um, I would hope that Altos is not going to go the same way, but, you know, I have a funny feeling, well, I don't have a funny feeling, I know for a fact, because they've told me so, that um, Jeff Bezos and Larry and Sergey just don't think that non-profits are very efficient at doing technology, which is nonsense. Um, so, you know, I think this is, you know, that, that's the main shortcoming in the movement right now, I feel. I'd say, you know, memetics meant motivation. And death has always been inevitable, so it's reasonable that people behave with that primary assumption. If death is a maybe, or the ability to radically extend our lives, it produces different memetics. And humans do things to memetic response, whether it be what you're working on, whether it be what your beliefs are, whether it be how you're voting, we signal to other humans around us by our behaviors. And I've, I've for example, I've personally been very surprised at the ferociousness of the death defenders. Hmm. That you would you would think that death is a, a thing that would create a lot of human agreement. It's not. It is extremely divisive. And there's all kinds of elegant and extravagant and clever arguments on why death is a virtue in society. And I'm not suggesting it's black and white. It's definitely nuanced, as most of these philosophical conversations are. Uh, you know, I, I would say my personal experience, I, I um, two months ago, I messaged out on social media, I'm going for a hike, who wants to join me? I got 11 people to show up at 7 a.m. in the morning. The next week, I had 100. The next week, I had 200. The next week, I had 500. And then two weeks ago, we had over 4,000 people in 58 countries on this loose idea that don't die is the guiding philosophical principle. There is a desire, and there hasn't been a memetic framework for people to say, I'm in, I want that. And I think if we could create a movement, a global movement, and make it tangible and real and actionable, I think we could shift things very fast, and people's perceptions would follow, and it would be all the same. Yeah, let me follow up on that a little bit, because I think you're absolutely right, Brian. Uh, but it can be phrased in a manner that really, you know, brings it a startling link, the irrationality and coherence of it all. You know, essentially, what, it all comes, what public behaviour, how, how people actually vote with their feet, actually comes down to, is that people do think that it, it's good to try not to die, just so long as you don't try hard enough to actually succeed. <laughs> um, you know, this is basically what it comes down to. And, like, there isn't anything else for which we think that. So that, that, that is the way we should phrase it, and to, to, to contrast it, to, 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 yeah, to get people to justify that. I'm sure there's some in the audience. Please have the courage to shout out a reason why 
It's not a good idea to try not to die. Can I hear overpopulation? Come on, Kurt. I know, I've heard some. Go to Walter Pope. Eat it. Boredom. If some, well, if lots of people never die, then the world can get overpopulated and then there's not enough space and people have to die. <laughs> All right, my friend, are you ready? How many people are there on the planet right now? Do you know? Somewhere near 8 billion. That's right, 8 billion. All right, how many acres of habitable land are there on the planet? Do you know? Of the world is ocean, and I think uh, you know why that happens because it rains a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not expecting you to do four pi r squared on eight thousand kilometers. <laughs> right. um, uh, but I can tell you, it's considerably more than eight billion. In other words, right now, if we spread everybody around the world evenly, we wouldn't have to go even to the even to the places where it's not much fun to live, let alone the sea, right? And we could still give every single person, including you, their own acre, oh. right? That's that's the actual number. So you're quite right that if we had eight trillion people, we might have a bit of a problem with having enough space for everybody. But that's not going to happen anytime soon. And in the meantime, we've got a hundred thousand people every day dying of aging. Uh, plus another 50 or 60,000 dying of other stuff. And the people who die of aging suffering that beforehand. So it seems like, you know, saying we ought to let that carry on happening because otherwise, centuries from now, we might have a space problem. Seems like, you know, not very logical, really. That's my answer. I also heard one on board uh, that that would be boring. You want to take that? Yeah. It so, yeah, we asked Homo erectus, do you want to live in the future? And Homo erectus might respond, legit, I've killed all the animals around. Life is kind of tough. I don't know. <laughs> the case for those of you who don't know, works at Disney and does a lot of uh, public outreach, so he lived there. Yeah, and I also uh, help run the charity Lifespan that I know that is focused on public engagement. But I just want to answer this question a little bit too. It's always important to look at data when you have it, right? So for both of those issues, is boredom going to be an issue and is overpopulation an issue? There is very clear statistics that point in the opposite direction. For example, uh, life expectancy increase is inversely correlated uh, with like birth birth rates, right? You know, the cause of causality here is, you know, potentially do really eerie things like, you know, increasing life expectancy is probably also paired with, you know, women being educated and contraception, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the statistics, you know, don't bear out that particular fear yet. And same thing with boredom. You know, there's a lot of studies on things like the hedonic treadmill, et cetera. And long story short is if you want to know how bored you're going to be in 100 years, it's roughly how bored you are right now. So don't be bored. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. I'd love to decentralize this uh, conversation. I'm going to have you guys line up and uh, after I, I ask two more questions. Um, I want to wrap up something here. So I, I don't want to let you off the hook, Bobby, with uh, what you disagree with uh, more on the rejuvenation athletes and biohackers uh, that want to optimize their life right now and live healthy today. All right. So what do I disagree with Brian about? And while I've got the microphone, so I'll disagree with you about as well, won't it? <laughs> so, what do I disagree with Brian about? Well, I'm not actually sure, because even though Brian and I are good friends and we talk quite a bit about the kinds of things he does and why he does them, I wouldn't say that I really understand Brian's head. I do think that I disagree in a kind of in a, in a sense that where there's no right and wrong about something. Namely, I can't imagine anything worse than subordinating my life to an athlete, which I believe is the way that you describe how you, what you've done. Um, that sounds like absolute hell on wheels. I, 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 I value my own autonomy. Um, well, it's a good idea that 
I would say that the goal of Prospera and Vitalia should not be to make death ops, but it should be to make suffering optional. Oh, I think that's, that's a much better phrase. That's good. And the reason I think it's a much better phrase It's twofold. First, well, maybe one two, actually, thinking about it. Um, first one is, nothing in favour of suffering either. Even people who can't figure out that we should, that it's illogical not to be against death, they still reckon that the better we can do against suffering, the better, right? The more we can do. There's no limit to that in anyone's mind, as far as I can tell. So it's much less controversial. I speak to people all the time, including here. They say, yeah, they don't think we should focus on suffering and not focus on death. And the thing is, that comes from the second reason, which is, it's actually okay not to focus on death, because if we actually, the more we actually succeed in addressing the main, number one, by far, cause of suffering, which is ageing, the more we will also succeed against death. Mm. It's a side effect. Yeah. Uh, right? So we don't have to regard them as competing goals at all. There were competing goals maybe 200 years ago when there were plenty of other causes of death that didn't have to do with ageing, but these uh, and they were not necessarily the major cause uh, associated with the major causes of suffering. But we don't have that problem anymore. Right now, by far, the major cause of suffering and death is the same one thing, ageing. Mm. Right. Don't die. Do you, do you disagree with what he said, Mr. Don't die? No. <laughs> I'm deeply grateful for Aubrey. He has been fighting the good fight for a very long time. He was a pioneer in the field. He's taken a lot of arrows, and I'm grateful that I benefit from his efforts. Mm -hmm. Have you said that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, was, I always had you there. I always say again, but... <laughs> uh, I will say one thing. Uh, for the past two years, I've been holding these dinners at my house about the future of being human. I buy 10 to 12 people, and it's a combination of engineers, astronauts, educators, uh, a wide spectrum of people. And it's two and a half hours, and that's how long it takes to get your head around the idea I'm going to tell you in 30 seconds. And when I tell this idea to you, you're going to reject it at a hand. The thought experiment is if you have access to an algorithm that can give you better, the best, the best, physical, spiritual, emotional health of your life. In exchange for doing that, you did what the algorithm said. You went to bed on bed when it said, you ate when it said, would you do it? Yes. No. So in that question, typically, yeah, okay, who who would do it? Okay. Uh, who who in their mind is thinking, I would do it, but I want to make some modifications. And then finally, who thinks that's just dystopic? What? It's yeah. yeah. And so it it takes uh, it really two and a half hours to hear the thoughts of everyone going back and forth on this conversation. And I wrote a book, a book on this. And what I'm suggesting the 25th century observes is the most unthinkable thing that we can imagine in this moment. We understand our minds to be our individual deity. It creates our own reality. We maintain complete control over everything we do, at least as we perceive it. And to imagine another, another system of intelligence could potentially augment that and or replace that and or something else that changes this configuration is perhaps the most offensive thought to have in the early 21st century. And the argument I'm making is that if you look at the speed of computational intelligence, it's getting much better at doing the things we do ourselves. And what I tried to, to demonstrate with Blueprint is it did a better job. It does a better job at being me than me. Mm -hmm. And I've never in my life been happier. I've never felt more free. I've never felt more expansive. I've never felt better in my entire life. And this is what I think we're up against the species is, can we actually avoid self-annihilation? Can we avoid killing each other? Can we avoid uh, nukes? Can we avoid bioterror? Can we avoid AI destroying us? Can we avoid destroying the planet? Can we avoid annihilation of the species? That is the number one thing we have as, as a species right now. Everything else is pelted in comparison to fight for our existence. 
And that's really what I'm trying to get at, is we have these deep, fundamental, philosophical, engineering problems that have in front of us, and we need something to do together. And Don't Die is the most played game every day by every human on the planet. There's nothing played more than Don't Die. We breathe every few seconds, we look both ways across the street, we throw out multi food, we wear seatbelts, we all play Don't Die. You go one layer above Don't Die, and we branch out into thousands of different games. That's the one thing we can agree upon. Hmm. Every form of life does Don't Die, right? You have the most users to this movement. <laughs> Literally every form of life. Yes. Um, what do you, Brian, disagree with, uh, or, or your advice for Vitalia? What would you like Vitalia to see tomorrow or differently? It probably just takes one success story to kick this thing off. You know, many circles, a great example, if they can bridge themselves into an FDA approval or an IND or some other legitimacy, you know, I think it, there's, it begins somewhere and it goes, then I think it will be crowned with legitimacy and they will flourish. Uh, but there's got to be a bridge to, you know, quote unquote, legitimate society when people perceive it. If it sits on the outskirts as Maverick, then it'll be a harder time to get adoption. So, yeah, one case study, I think, which uh, will open the floodgates for just the drive. All right, I'm going to open the floodgates for questions. Please line up here. Meanwhile, if you can answer uh, about public perception, what, what is your strategy on, on PR, on how you engage the public to accept these ideas, or, or, or you don't even care about accepting the ideas, I know you do. So, uh, well... Actually, there is a limit to how much I can. Wow. I have always, I have always felt that it's um, it's necessary to find the most efficient way to get public opinion change eventually, and to get widespread and eventually universal adoption of technologies that we develop. Um, but I've recognised since forever that the public is uh, another tanker that's difficult to turn. And therefore, that we need to focus on the um, the, the, the path of least resistance, which usually means getting a small number of people, whether it's early adopters or whether it's techno visionaries of, of whatever kind, to um, uh, to to, uh, to get them on board and to get them to get stuff done, which then other people start taking notice of. Um, now, of course, Prospera uh, in general, Vitalia in particular, you know, all the best leaders cropping up are massive of that, and that's exactly why I've chosen to dedicate a lot of my time and effort to doing whatever I can to promote that off and spend the entire eight weeks here, for example. Um, so I I'm not really all about uh, everybody as the, as, as Accepting the ultimate goal, and, and I'm regarding that as something that will happen on its own once other things happen. Of course, I've got very many different strategies for going about um, changing people's minds, getting people on board. It depends on where they start. I learned very early on that I had to do like 95% of the listening and 5% of the talking, which is not something that comes naturally to me. Um, and, uh, you know, because people are so different in what their um, pressure points are, so to speak. Um, I think, you know, specifically in the context of Italia, you know, when I'm out there on Twitter or on stage or on camera talking about Italia, I think the situation would be rather simpler because it's new, I'm new to it, you know, I've got particular views about why it blows my mind um, and I, why I believe it can really truly quite soon be the global hub of medical tourism. Um, and I'll just be saying more of the same thing to everybody. Hey guys, um, I wanted to use a, a meme into the conversation. So I know your meme was, you know, don't die. But um, the only way that we avoid death is by experiencing pain, suffering first. You know, people who don't have pain receptors, they end up dying really early, like uh, when they don't have like NAV 1.7 and they, they die, you know. So I feel like that is that is the precursor and that is the thing to focus on. But on the other side of the equation, if we really do succeed in, in living longer and when we have you know trillions of people one day, I think a really good meme that Elon Musk seems to be uh, running with is uh, space travel. And I have very rarely heard people talk about longevity drugs to protect against like radiation, induce oxidative stress, and, and the, the perils of space. So 
I think uh, riding on that, you know, don't suffer, let's get to space, we need longevity drugs just as much as we need the rockets. I think it's a, an interesting meme I haven't seen anyone ever. And I, I just kind of want to be enthusiastic. Yeah, okay, so let me take that first. So actually there is currently quite a bit of research going on that is leveraging the overlap, the intersection between longevity research and space research. Um, I meant more like um, at these talks and these conferences, okay. like the meme, you know, because I know there's tons of drugs that fire radiation. Right, yeah, of course. I mean, the, the free radical theory of evidence, yeah, the very important mechanistic theory of evidence yeah. from radiation biology. Um, but uh, yeah, in terms of the meme, well, I'm actually rather pleased that it had to come up yeah? because it's nonsense. Well, um, uh, they, um, First of all, you know, the way that it has traditionally come up, the idea of, oh, we're going to space, mm -hmm. is something that doesn't work mathematically as a solution to the overpopulation problem, because if we have a, you know, a, a greater birth rate than the death rate, then we have an exponential growth in the total number of people that exist at any one time, and yet we only have a cubic growth in the amount of space that we can get to in a certain amount of time. And, you know, exponential functions are the take part of it. With current... In fact, you can go further than that if you just look at the amount of matter that we would need to build people, let alone spaceships, you won't get beyond the solar system. Yeah, with current technology. But I mean, that's, I mean, talk about um, dystopian, you know, I mean, I hope we can all get to space one. Yeah. Because if we achieve these longevity goals and we have 8 trillion people. Yeah, I don't, I'm not objecting to some people going to space. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, using a little mass exodus thing. And the other problem, which is a huge problem in terms of advocacy and, and outreach, is nearly nobody actually wants to go to space. <laughs> That's actually quite a good thing to remember, boy and girl. Uh, if somebody comes up to you and they say, oh, I, I don't think this anti-Asian research is a particularly good idea, and you say, why? And they say, well, we too many people. Uh, and then if your response is, don't worry, we're all going to space, then, like... Even forgetting the mathematical stuff I just said, um, so the first thing they're going to think is, you're fucking crazy, I don't want to go into space. But then, it's worse than that. They're going to come back with all the other stupid questions, like, oh, it's going to be boring, or don't know what it takes, they're going to live forever. And even if you have good answers, they're not going to listen anymore, because you've taken a huge step backwards in terms of their opinion on you, by giving such a fucked up answer. <laughs> <laughs> Aubrey's undecided on this issue. <laughs> so I'd, I'd say, as we frame your question, you're asking the question, where's the next frontier of exploration? And you've you've put in that slot a certain word that has certain ideas around it. And we as a species are an explorer species. We love to explore. And if you say, what is there to explore? We understand putting one foot in front of the other and we see an object. So we say, there's the moon, we're going to the moon. We see one object past it, let's go to the next rock. Uh, there may be a situation where the next frontier of exploration may be our inner self and our consciousness. Now, that may be the most expansive exploration in the history of the species. And we have to remind ourselves, we're giving birth to a form of intelligence that so far exceeds ours. We may be in a moment where the only rational and wise answer we can generate is we don't know full stop we just don't now we are accustomed to thinking we have always known we've always been the one to say i have a question about this given thing and we run our mouths and we offer up a solution that may actually be at the very end in this moment but that is so hard for us to internalize because we have been accustomed our entire existence to being able to offer something that we know Okay, keep questions for it. Uh, maybe yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so my my question, uh, it's more, I would say it's more philosophical. You know, at this point, I'm over fifty, um, and so there there comes a point where you begin to really to become philosophical about life and the value of it, the preciousness of it, because it is so scarce. So, if scarcity is part of what makes life so valuable. What does abundance of life do to the value of it? Yeah, well, I'm 60 and I'm still not a philosopher. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, 
Personally, I don't think scarcity had anything to do with how I think about my, the value of my life or of other people's lives. Um, I'm just like, I'm a simple, first things first kind of guy. I just don't want to get sick. I'm fairly sure that however long ago I was born, I will not want to get sick. I'm fairly sure that's true of very nearly everybody else. And that's all we need to know in order to decide that this is the world's most important problem. So, you know, yeah, it's good philosophy. <laughs> Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I've said this answer multiple times, and I'll say it again because I think it's really point. Is so 4.5 billion years, and we have arrived. We're baby steps away from superintelligence. It's right now. Whether you think it's a year away or 20 years from now, whatever, it's right now. It's that form of intelligence is going to be orders of magnitude more intelligence than we are. It's going to be an existence we cannot even begin to imagine. We don't have the words for it. We don't have ideas. We have no idea what's going to happen. We're up against an absolute wall of fog. And the only thing I can come back to is given the circumstances, the literally the only thing I can say about my existence, I don't want to die. There's nothing I can say even one layer about. I can't say whether I want pain. I can't say whether I want happiness. I can't say whether I want sadness. I don't know. I'm open to every possibility. As we grow up, we learn these basic states of consciousness, like having a friend and falling in love and going through a heartbreak and then getting inebriated and doing a psychedelic. And you experience this ever-expanding space of what your conscious state can be. And maybe it's the case that we have conscious states that are thousands or billions of times bigger than what we've done. We now have the ability to engineer biology and atoms. We, like, we have root, min, root admin access to the building blocks of reality. So... It's blowing open the possibility space. And I think that's why we just don't have the vocabulary for it to even contemplate these questions. I want to actually um, echo that a little bit, because I'm not 100% where Brian is on this, but I'm 99% there. I believe that there are some things that we can be so sure we are going to continue to think, however far in the future we look, that we can assume that they are actually certain. So... Yeah, not wanting to die, certainly one, but not wanting to get sick is, I, I believe, up there, right? Um, however, the sense of which I want to work on what you said, Brian, is that very, very often the objections to the kind of the, the longevity mission revolve around aspects of the distant future. Like, oh, our brains were not evolved to work for 200 years. They will stop working in this or that way. It's got to completely overlooks the fact that, hello, we're only going to get older at one year per year. You know, we're not going to be any, we're going to be 200 for at least 100 years from now, whatever happens. And good luck guessing what technologies we're going to have 100 years from now. It's completely wrong to base any of our decisions today on what technologies will or will not exist 100 years from now, or even 50 years from now. And yet people do it all the time. So when everyone, anyone does it to you, find out that they're being dumb. Yeah, I think that puts me in the top one percentile of Aubrey's opinions. Thank you, Aubrey. I would say. Hi, Brian and Aubrey. First, thanks, both of you, for doing great work. Hope that you've pivoted into longevity. What would make you pivot out of longevity? When I say pivot, what I mean is over you talked at FedEx mentioned about what you did before and what made you go into it. Brian, of course, sold Brain Tree, then mode PayPal. So, what would change your mind? For me, it's easy. It's not about changing my mind, it's, uh, uh, it's a matter of the circumstances changing. Um, I've always said this actually, I probably find quotes from me saying this 20 years ago. My goal is to become unnecessary, to bring the field to a point towards contributing to bring the field to a point where everything I'm good at, there are plenty of other people who are better at it than me. So that I can, I think the quote that I have given is, I said that I can retreat into glorious obscurity um, <laughs> and like, you know, actually have a bit of a rest. Yeah, the thing that motivates me is I care about being respected by the 25th century. Hmm. I could care less how people think about me today because the ideas and norms and expectations of today are really by dead people. And if you care about what people think about you today, you'll be uh, severely hampered in your ability to be boldly ambitious. And for me, thinking through the 20th century's observations, 
Uh, so the thing that would make me change my mind is if I concluded that they would respect something different than what I'm doing now. Hello, uh, Mark Hamilton in here from Longevity Biotech Fellowship. I want to switch to something a little more practical and less philosophical and bring up a few points that you guys have already said. So one is 100,000 people dying every day. Another is imminent potential super intelligence. Um, and then Lawrence also mentioned drugs and what kind of drugs could be developed. Um, something that's been left off that hasn't been discussed is other critical path technology development. So what if it is 20 years from now that we get super intelligence on one, um, then 100,000 people have been dying during that time, right? There's a lot of other critical path technology development that is not very well funded because it's not privately investable. It's not low-hanging fruit, it's not drugs. Aubrey has struggled to get a lot of really important work funded, and it's always been chronically a struggle. Things like the gene delivery problem, uh, we really need to be putting more, like we should be fighting this battle on multiple fronts and not just waiting for super intelligence to solve the problem and not just focusing on biohacking and drugs that we know by only a small amount of time in the best case scenario. So there's these other strategies like gene delivery, like replacement strategies, um, and those are antionics. Like that might be the only way that some people get through this. Um, those struggle to get funding. Then, like, yeah, what do, what do we do about that? Like, is, how do we solve that problem? Yeah. So I mean, again, it comes back to something that Brian and I have both been saying, namely, how little we know. I'm very strongly in favour of pursuing every pioneering technology to achieve any particular you know, clearly desirable technological goal that is um, that might be the shortest route, uh, because there's so much that we don't know. Whether it's good surprises or bad surprises, they happen every week, every month, in any, in any long-term research program that's trying to do something really ambitious. If I could go, I could even talk about individual narrow um, areas. So, for example, actually, Mark was my very first funded PhD student in 2005, is that right? Yeah, I dropped out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and the project that he worked on is still going on, um, but there are maybe other ways to achieve the same goal. It's to do with mitochondrial mutation. And I've been looking for those ways all the time. That's gonna, that, that, so I promote those ways as well. I'm not wedded to a particular way, and I think we constantly have to be doing that at every level, whether it's on individual, very narrowly circumscribed problems like that, or whether it's on aging in general, or whether it's on um, you know, climate change. A lot of the um, answers, coming back again to the uh, responses to deficits, uh, a lot of the answers that are most effective revolve around the, develop, the likely time frame for development of other technologies. For example, the real overpopulation problem is, of course, as I've just said, not a problem of space, but it very much is a problem of pollution, which is precisely being tackled eventually by carbon capture and bacteria that eat plastics and all these kinds of things. But we don't know how long those technologies are going to take to be developed. So again, I very much agree with what you said, Mark. I, Mark and I also go years back. I invested in his company, Synthigo. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's an opportunity here where, uh, like, I'm, I'm currently contemplating or exploring putting a blueprint and don't die on chain and trying to computationally build homo evolutus. So if you can do a proof of workout with sleep, with nutrition, food, with biomarkers, if you can build an ecosystem where a bunch of people come in, if you can do life insurance, if you can do health insurance, if you computationally build the next evolution of human, then and you give scores and it can be gamified, you create this demand for these things. Because if I've got a number that shows how I'm doing it and don't die, and I want to now move it because it's a fun game to play, you now have a unique source of demand. So I'm trying to figure out if there's a if there's a way to do this. Uh, you know, Mark to uh, the shout out for him is he's put together a map on how to solve aging. It doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. The fact that he's audacious enough to, to try it out, I think is a, is applaudworthy. And so I, I love that uh, people are actually having to go at trying to tackle this tactically. Hmm.
Robert, on second, you said. We should, we should talk, uh, working on this, so uh, incentives. Uh, last two questions. Thank you, thank you so much for making us be here. Well, Francesca here, thank you also for sending supplies. And the uh, first question will be directly for uh, Brian. Uh, have you all thought about creating your charter city or adopting Prospera uh, to test your algorithm and blueprint protocol? Yes, uh, we'd like to. Okay, amazing. And the second question is, can I look at your blood for my proof of concept? Um, look at my blood? Yeah. yeah. I get a lot of requests. Yes. <laughs> um, okay. Um, my question is mostly at Brian, but you both can answer. Um, so we've been talking a lot about uh, aging as a like mean to not die, but technically there's a lot of other ways that we could explore. Um, and I'm curious about your opinion on all these other possibilities and like what you think they are effective or like good things to look at and secondly we could zoom out and think about all these other ways so like basically like, what do you think is the best pipeline to get to not to die in all like actually not that okay i'll go first uh, um uh there was one mention of cryonics earlier let me talk a bit more about that um, if cryonics already worked really well, so we could already revive people who had been cryopreserved when they had just become legally dead, then um, that would be not exactly an alternative way to reach the not dying threshold uh, relative to the boring wet way that I work on, um, but rather it would be something that would benefit different people. Namely, you know, the overwhelming majority of people for whom it would make sense to be cryopreserved would be people who are um, too old already to make it to be to, to be beneficiaries of the stuff that I'm trying to develop and that what might eventually happen in the next ten or twenty years. Um, now, the thing is, it doesn't work yet, but there's really good research that that can be done to greatly reduce the amount of damage done by the cryopreservation process, which is really what this is all about. And that research also is just criminally underfunded. Uh, I, I put substantial money into it for my own foundation, but uh, I've got so much I can. So, um, you know, that's, that's one example to answer your question, I think. It's probably the best one. The way I've thought about this is, if, if we map the potential ways that we we become extinct as a species or have suffered some catastrophic event, excluding a super volcano or an asteroid. And if we isolate, we say we have human on human violence, uh, like bio warfare or nuclear annihilation, or if we say uh, climate change where the earth becomes unsustainable for us, or if we say there's some, some undesirable outcome of AI that makes existence either to like, eliminate humans or some undesirable outcome. Uh, a lot of those things we feel like are out of our control. Like what can each one of us in this room do? And so I tried to become all three of the problems myself. And so if you take the problem of uh, human annihilation, at the, at the core of it, it's you don't have shared incentives. You, you basically are you're fighting over what the, the objective function is. And so I tried to say that I myself am a representation of that, where I have different versions of me that want to do different things. At night, I may want to eat bad food, and I may want to stay up late and not pay attention to my bedtime, I may also commit other self-harm in the form of grind culture or something that accelerates my own death. And I had to reframe the problem and say, okay, I'm a collection of 35 trillion cells. That's Brian Johnson. How can I align my 35 trillion cells over one objective function, don't die? And that's the algorithm. And so right now, I understand that people see me as eccentric and crazy and weird and a vampire and an elf and a list on. Fine. I'm trying to demonstrate biological goal alignment within one entity of intelligence. And we as a species are a single entity of intelligence. And then same is true with climate change, where I try to become planet Earth. Where just you take a blueprint, you say, replace my body with planet Earth. And now you measure Earth with millions of data points. You look at the scientific evidence on what maintains a sustainable biosphere. You implement the protocol, and you go again and again. But right now, we treat planet Earth identically to how we treat our bodies. We do whatever we want, no matter how bad we pollute the Earth, no matter how bad we make circumstances, we do whatever we want. So we, we're opposed to this idea. And then third is AI, 
I'm trying for the same thing. I'm trying to say the only thing we build within AI is alignment. So you take the first example of me as a system of intelligence, me as planet Earth, and you say, how do we code AI? Every single one of these layers applies the same philosophy, the same practical implementation, and it's science-based, it's data-based, and it follows these same rules that we need some cohesive thread of existence. Otherwise, these problems run on their own, and we don't have any any coordinated effort to solve our own our own uh, existence. And so, to me, if we all can empower ourselves to become the problem, own the problem, be the problem, then we can collectively solve it. But there's not going to be like a magic solution that someone solves it for us. It's really a species-wide endeavor. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us five stars in your favorite podcast app and consider subscribing to our Substack. I appreciate your support that makes this show possible. See you in the next one.